Hello and welcome to Heart to Heart Conversations on Dream Corner with Vivo Yolo. On today's show, I'm chatting with Betty Herbert. Betty is a blogger and she's the author of 52 Seductions. 52 Seductions charts Betty and Herbert's quest to invite lost back into their relationship. So how are you, Betty? I'm very well, thank you. I'm, I'm enjoying autumn. It's proper autumn now. Oh, honestly, I was walking down here today and I said, this is the best weather ever it's not too cold it's not too hot and it's properly blustery as well which is just lovely i love this time of year best time to go running actually when sure yeah Yeah. this is is really best best weather you're not having to wear gloves just yet Mm. yeah soon you'll be in gloves (laughs) and yeah and hats hats, yeah (laughs) i saw a lady wearing gloves i was like honey not not quite yet not quite yet the thing i hate most in the world is being too hot i I absolutely hate that because once i feel too hot i feel kind of stressed as well and the last month it was so warm and I kept wearing the wrong clothes and I wanted to get into my lovely autumn stuff and I kept getting it wrong so now I'm happy it's a bit yeah. colder but it's not too cold <laughs> so how are you I'm really well thank you I'm extremely busy I've just come back from a boot camp with the school for creative startups oh me about that well, it's an organisation set up by Doug Richard, which uh, educates um, yeah, new entrepreneurs, really. And they've just moved into educating creative entrepreneurs. So people like writers like me, artists, makers, voiceover artists. I met a voiceover. Yeah, and, and they take you in and they give you some hard business skills to make sure you can make a proper living from what you do. Which, frankly, I don't think I'd be insulting anyone to say many of us needed very desperately. <laughs> Why did you decide to go and do that? I think I've had a real, really big shift in thinking over the last few years. I've been a writer for a long time and I've never had very high expectations of making a big living from it, I suppose. Um, because actually it's, that just reflects the, the market. Most writers, unless they go absolutely mega, don't earn very much money at all and substitute their writing income with teaching. And I think I always just thought I would just do that. At some point I would go into a university department and teach. And then over the last few years I've realised that actually the way that I write is quite entrepreneurial and that I really just needed to build some extra skills so that I can indulge that part of me because actually the business side of writing I'm really interested in I really enjoy and I think traditionally the writer has been a very sort of very passive figure really that, that's been kind of nannied by the people around them you know the agents and the publishers and the editors do everything for them and all they've got to do is lock themselves in a room and write and I'm just not that person I've had a career before now I'm used to doing stuff for myself and I'm really competent at that and as soon as I started writing full time I realized that I, I was actually missing this massive part of me that had to go out and be effective in the world and so yes yeah, so that's when I decided that I really needed to grow a few entrepreneurial skills as well and a few business skills so yeah okay so let's back pedal to how you got to write 52 seductions what were you doing prior to all this just to write it so when I started 52 seductions I was in the middle of my second novel actually um, oh, so you've been you've been writing books. Uh, yeah, yeah. I've got a, um, a uh, I self published a volume of poetry first of all. Uh, then I had a collection of short stories published by a, quite a small local publisher, and then I had a novel published by a small mainstream publisher. But you know, none of them had done very well. None of them had sold very many copies. I didn't certainly didn't have a very high author profile. Um, and as I say, that's kind of where I almost expected to be. I guess um, it wasn't that I wasn't ambitious. I was ambitious for my writing, but I just knew that there were loads of 
fantastic writers out there that weren't becoming mega and I suppose I was just trying to be realistic. So I was, I was halfway through my second novel and I felt like my head was very full of everything and I felt like I needed to do something that really refreshed me. I felt like I was pulling myself up a really difficult hill with this novel and I was, look, I was just looking for a different project I suppose and suddenly one day I just suddenly, it, this, this whole idea for the blog just dropped into my head and it arose from a very real issue. You know, my husband and I, uh, like many couples after a long time together weren't having much of a sex life anymore and it was something that we both found really upsetting but that we just didn't know how to do anything about it and just suddenly one day I thought do you know what I'm going to do I'm going to I'm going to start this project and I'm going to blog it and the blogging will have two advantages um, it will let me write in a completely different voice and just get back to really enjoying writing for the joy of doing it and it will help me to reform my sex life so you know it was a double whammy it was brilliant so yeah that's that's kind of where I was really and did you discuss this with your husband to say I'm going to document this Yes, I did. I actually, I've got a big thing about ethics, actually, when you're writing about life. And there's loads of writers that do. I think it's really, really important to get informed consent from the people that take part in it. And I think it's hugely important to be proceeding in the most open way possible. Now, the way that we decided to structure it was that we'd be anonymous, which, yeah, which let us, you know, write whatever we wanted. And we literally didn't even tell our best friends. I mean, nobody knew. And I, and that's how I ended up being Betty Herbert. Uh, my real name's Catherine May, which is no secret now, but um, at the really? time, yeah, yeah. I'm just I used to, that. I'm just used to being called Betty now. It just, uh, you know, it's, I've just become this. You're kidding. No, no. Betty's not your name. I took on a different name. Yeah. <laughs> Which actually, yeah, and it, it, you know, it feels very contemporary to do that in that, you know, we've had loads of people now who've become authors from writing anonymous blogs, but actually it's a very traditional writerly thing to do, to to take on a pen name. And now I respond to Betty as much as I respond to Catherine. (laughs) Are you serious? Yeah, totally serious. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so... Herbert is your husband's yes. fictional name. Yes, because he he's still he's a very shy person basically, uh, and he still doesn't really want any attention. He still doesn't let me use his photo anywhere. Um, I don't and blame I him. no, I don't blame him either. Because also, I mean, of course, he didn't have any control over the writing. You know, he had to sit back and let that be written. And I think he was very brave. And I tell you, the really brave thing, he chose not to read it for the whole time we were writing the blog. Totally out of choice. Knew where it was. Always the offer was on the table, but he decided that he... Why do you think he didn't want to... Well, he, he didn't want to see his sexual performance reflected back at him so soon after it happened. <laughs> but he, I mean, it was a, a really tremendous act of trust, actually. And, uh, you know, it's a very intimate book, but actually I think that's part of the intimacy of the book was that he trusted me and he only read it at the end and loved it and was was actually really delighted by it thank goodness i was that was the nervous couple of days as he was reading through the draft of the book but um but no he loved it he felt he felt he said um you know i feel like you've written a book about how much you love me and that's true that's exactly what i'd done <laughs> you know i'm such a romantic i so, know you're so oh, devil, honestly <laughs> that is so sweet so let's start at the beginning you decided that you wanted to invite Lost back into your relationship. How long had you been together? We had, at that point, been together, I think, about 12 years. So a long time. When we got together, I was still at school. And 
you know, that we'd been through me going to university, we'd been through several careers on my part because I don't stick with anything very much for very long. What, what did you used to do? I started off in a branding agency uh, and then I moved into classroom teaching. Really? Yep, yep. And then from that I moved into kind of a more sort of educational consulting role going into schools. Oh, before that I did galleries and museums education and from there... Uh, I started working with teachers to help them to make the curriculum more creative, which is where, you know, a big passion of mine lies. I really, I'm really passionate about what education is and how we need to change it to make it meet everyone's needs. So I've spent lots of years doing that. And yeah, so that by the time I started writing 52 Seductions, I was still working in that industry. Yeah, so I've been... <laughs> so our relationship has seen us all through that. And as I said before, really, I think it's so, so common for couples to just lose their sex drive over many years. And it's something we don't really speak about. It's something we have very high expectations of, and they're not always very realistic. And I think that was part of the project for us, actually, was understanding how other people were managing that situation and how similar we were to them and as I, as soon as I started writing the blog I started getting emails and letters and direct messages from people who just wanted to share their experience often from men in particular as well Are you serious mm. <gasps> totally serious yeah because you know women maybe have more of an outlet for this kind of stuff they might talk to their friends about it and I think a lot of women are quite proud that they don't have sex anymore. I think that becomes part of female culture in some ways, that we start saying, oh, I'm not interested in that anymore. You know, I've had my babies now, I'm done with it. And that's leaving a lot of very hurt and bewildered men out there who are feeling like a big part of their life has died and they've got no access to it. And I, I learnt that when I started writing the blog, that people, men were contacting me to say... I'm so glad to hear a woman talking about this and to understand what's going on because I feel like my wife doesn't love me anymore. And it was quite heartbreaking. And it's not the case, is it? It's not the case at all. And it, it's, it's a real, it's maybe a Mars and Venus thing. You know, it's a, it's a misunderstanding between two people who see sex in a very different way, I think. And it's silly to generalise because... You know, there's a, there's huge diversity out there, but I think women associate intimacy with love and men associate sex and love. And they would see sex, love and intimacy as very similar things, I think. Um, whereas women often think that sex is the opposite of love. They think that sex is something that can't be... Yeah, a bit dirty, bit, you know, a bit naughty. And as relationships go on, they feel less and less naughty. And so they don't do it. And I, I think, and I, I think, you know, when I say women, I mean me too. I felt like that too. I felt like sex was something that just felt less relevant to me as time had gone on and that it had been replaced by something that I thought was superior. But if I was honest with myself, I was also really craving that, you know, that sort of wild joy that you get when you're, you're having sex. That, you know, it's a shame to edit that out of your life, I guess. And I think more about um, society, women are not... I don't know if to say they're not given permission mm. to talk about it in the same way that men talk about it. I think you're right. I mean, I, you know, we've we've come a long way, and, and we all acknowledge that. But it's like a dirty secret. So they'll yeah. talk about it with their girlfriends, yes, or in secret. So there's, you know, when they talk about lots of people reading erotica mm -hmm. on their Kindles and stuff like that. So it's because there's that outlet now for yeah. them to to talk about it or to even imagine it or be part of it. So doing it with or talking about it with a husband or a partner, it it, it may give. <laughs> I don't know if it's trying to invite more 
more sex into the relationship and they're not ready to yeah. to, to embark on that. I, I, I mean, I think, um, I think women's relationship with sex and men's is still incredibly complex and I don't think we fully understand it. I think there's still a lot of uh, guilt and embarrassment about it. I think there's still a very, very wide belief that women aren't don't have particularly wild sexual imaginations mm. however all the research all the sexological research that's going on suggests that actually we have much dirtier minds than we care to admit <laughs> um there's a really really famous study that um that measured women's response i'm not going to describe how that response was measured please don't no no <laughs> but it, me- it measured women's response to watching different kinds of porn and they, they replicated it with men. So when men watched all sorts of different kinds of porn, so straight porn, gay porn, lesbian porn, they only responded to the kind of sex that they said they liked. So if they were gay men, they responded to gay porn. If they were straight men, they responded to straight porn. Fine. Nice and easy. Women said women had sexual responses to types of porn that they said they didn't like at all. So their, their mind was saying one thing and their bodies were saying another. And that was common amongst huge groups of women. And basically, women responded to anything they watched. So we were the sexier group, but we hate admitting that. And I think women have got a lot to come to terms with about their sexuality and a lot to come to terms with about body image as well. I think that's the huge elephant in the room with women always, that... Our sexuality is so tied up with how attractive we think we look from the outside. And as soon as we put on a bit of weight, we start denying ourselves the ability to feel attractive because we think, no, no, no. Nobody's going to find me attractive. Yeah, yeah. If nobody finds me attractive, then I'm not going to be interested at all. And that's hugely sad. And it's, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a load of work that we need to do about how our bodies naturally age and change over time and how wonderful that is and how you can still have this amazingly rich sex life, you know, despite the fact that your body isn't that of an 18-year-old. Yeah, absolutely. So you decided... 52 seductions. What was the premise of it? So I thought I'd kind of make up a very simple project. I wanted something we could follow. Um, I mean, my first instinct was like, right, we have to have sex every day. But I knew that after a couple of days, we were just going to burn out and lose interest. So I thought, okay, something really simple. One, having sex once a week for a year. And then I thought, well, it's not the having sex that's the problem. It's the kind of erotic imagination behind that. It's how boring that sex can be. And so what I decided is that we'd have to seduce each other once a week for a year and to take it in turns. So uh, the idea behind that, I guess, is that I wanted us to both be brave and start suggesting new things and suggesting things that we thought would be interesting. And there's a huge emotional burden behind that because you kind of have to own up to stuff. You have to say... Do you know what? I actually really, we've never done this before, and you might not think this is me at all, but I really fancy trying this. And sometimes it was great, and sometimes it was ridiculous, and we hated it, and we learned to laugh about it, and that was the most valuable thing. <laughs> I think why your project, or, you know, and it developed into a book, was successful was because both of you were on board yes. and I think both of you recognised the need to do to do it. To do the work. Yeah, because it was real work actually. I mean I think if we'd have I don't mean work in a bad way, but I mean in a in a no, intense work? way. Relationship is work. They are mass yeah, relationships work and if you don't think your relationships work then you're not doing it right. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean we we both had to put a load of effort in and it dredged up some some big emotions for both of us. It dredged up some big insecurities and some kind of 
anxieties that we were both carrying. Um, it was like therapy. It really was. I was you know, I was just going to ask, mm. why didn't you go to therapy instead <laughs> rather than put yourself through, through this? Well, this was much more fun. Um, <laughs> that is true. But the therapist will probably have given you some homework every time. I think so. I mean, I, I think what we ended up doing was just very similar. And I think we wouldn't. it wouldn't have occurred to us to go to therapy because we were very happy together. Even though we weren't having sex, we had a really happy relationship. And, and sex was the only thing that wasn't really going right for us. And so I don't think we'd have thought that a therapist would have been necessary. But in retrospect, I can see how that therapy was fantastic and that actually I, I now urge couples to go to therapy for much smaller things. You know, if you've got something you need working out, why the hell wouldn't you do it? Why not make your relationship the best thing that it can be? Yeah, I think... Well, I'm not in a relationship yet, but I seem to have all these ideas because I, I, I interview lots of people and I read a lot. So I think I have some idea of what it could be. I think people always imagine that when you're going to see a therapist, then it's almost like the last yes, the yeah, last hurdle. Exactly. And this is the only thing that is going to save us. Yeah. It's, you know, yeah. do more boss kind of thing. Mm, mm. And, and it's not it's not the case. It's not at all. And I think, um, I think people often and leave it too late you know and they I mean the, the question that people always ask me in interviews which you haven't thank you is um, so if you hadn't done this project would one of you have had an affair and my answer is always no I know it's fascinating but we have this kind of cultural idea that you know that that's what you do if your relationship isn't going right rather than go to a therapist and do the sensible thing you go off and have an affair with someone um, and then you try and work your way back and then you screw stuff up even more and then you've got much further to come from yeah and i do that's think dire, like, i know that sort of idea in it. i guess it's a society thing it's a culture thing. it's a it's totally a culture thing because we still see any kind of therapy as a last resort as well you know you you don't engage a therapist uh, just to make your life more smooth like you might do in America. I mean, it's very common to just have a therapist running along in the background in the States. Um, and, you know, all the better for it, I guess. But in this country, you know, we wait till we're absolutely suicidal before we see a therapist. We see it as an utterly last resort. And equally, we wait till our, our marriage is totally on the rocks and we've had sex with 15 other people before we think, oh, maybe I'll do some work on this. It's just a shame. I don't know. Yeah, it is. So... You said a lot of um, emotional things and ins mm. insecurities uh, you know, came to the surface mm. uh, doing this uh, project. What did you learn about yourself? Oh, God, a huge amount. And, and I meant a lot of it would be really hard to express, but I think I learned that I had this very fixed political idea of how my relationship should run. And that because I, uh, at university, I did uh, sociology and a big part of that was women's studies and I'd read my feminism and I had these really strident views about male sexuality and the politics of that. And because of that, I wasn't engaging with what I felt and thought. I was overriding my own feelings and my own, you know, sensations even with a load of words that I was telling myself. And... That took me by surprise that when I actually stopped to think about what I was fantasizing about, what I was desiring, it was really different from the narrative I'd been giving myself and that that had made sex much more boring for me. Uh, the, you know, there's a whole other pile of stuff as well about, you know, our, our anxieties about being abandoned by our partner or body image, all sorts of things that we may be carrying along for a long time. 
and it's really interesting that just by diving into one aspect of our relationship they all came up and we ended up sort of talking about them I think you know for me I was I was always really afraid that I might outgrow the relationship yeah, because we well, we're very different people. Um, Herbert is a um, he's he's kind of very steady. He doesn't change much. He he he's kind of he knows what he wants and he does it. And he's very certain about the life he wants. Whereas I'm all about change. I love change. I love moving Variety. on to the next thing. Yeah, I you know if if I'd been on my own, I'd have lived in loads of countries. I'd have learnt fifteen languages. You know, I, I'm very very different to that. And I love him and I love being with him. And I realised that I'd always had a fear that if I changed too much, I would leave him behind. Yeah. And I, I think the process of this made us talk about that, actually. And part of the process of that was when the blog started taking off and there was this, you know, suddenly this big book deal on the table. And that's, that, that really ignited my fears in a way that I've never felt before. You know, there was suddenly real jeopardy for me that, I, that being successful was more of a problem than, I, than a, a pleasure, actually. I just got scared. And um, how did he feel? I think he was scared in different ways. I mean, I think, I think actually he had a similar fear. I think we were both kind of sharing that same fear. And I think what was great about having that, you know, addressing that fear in the middle of that project was that we were reaffirming our relationship at the same time and it made it a very safe environment that we could do that. But, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing, isn't it, success? I mean, you interview successful people all the time or people on the path to success even. It's not an uncomplicated relationship you have with success, is it? No, it's never uncomplicated. No, no I think... This is only in a relationship, and mm. I think people fear that their whole life and what they've known as calm and what they thought was okay is mm. going to change. Mm. And, and the people mm. around them are not going to accept that this is yeah. their desire. Because it, it, it says one or two things. It says, I want to move away from where I've yeah. been with the people yeah. around me. And I, I, you know, some people might think, oh, you think you're better than me kind of thing. Yeah. So you're, you're moving up because yeah. you're going to be more known, recognized, mm. and probably have mm. the uh, financial um, accolade that yeah. comes yeah. with that. And then the other thing is you start to feel that the people who already knew you and accepted you for who you are, mm. um, you're not going to have, you're not going to find those sorts of people anymore. Which, so you feel lonely. You then what was so the point of, So what was the point of all that then? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think I think you've you've hit the nail on the head with both of those things yeah. there. And I and for me, I mean, I, I you know I grew up on a council estate and I went to Cambridge, and I'd already taken a hell of a lot of stick for that. Actually, you know, yeah, absolutely. People kind of want you to go for as long as you're planning to go, and then as soon as you're there, they say, "Oh, you've changed. You think you're better than us," or that kind of thing. And. I think that made me very fearful of taking that next step. And I, I, think, I think you're also right about the people that you meet that you fear that you won't like them. And I think I do like those people less, actually. I still like people from what I would see as my own background much more. I like down-to-earth people. I struggle deeply with being middle class. I really do. I, <laughs> it's, it's interesting, you know, because I, I see this all the time. Mm. Your friends from old are the friends you you always want to be with because you've known you've, you've grown up with them, mm. and then you meet new friends along the way. And you say, "Oh, they don't understand me." You keep on falling yeah. out with people, or people don't understand you. Yeah, yeah. You know, there are all these. Yeah. 
you know, complications that seem to turn up with new relationships where yeah. you've, you've acquired some wealth and, and all that. Mm. And, and I think that's, that's always the dichotomy we'd always live in mm. once you're striving to be successful, mm. you know, mm. and it probably more, uh, you have more affluence than the people you, you grew up with. Yeah, and I, I this for me, there's something about feeling at home that I I don't always feel with people outside of my background. I and actually, you know, the things that people praise the book for being kind of honest and humorous and earthy come from my working class background, and I. I find a, a big kind of disconnect with the middle class culture of taking offence at everything and pussyfooting around everyone. I, I just yearn to be back in the environment where you just, where actually the more you're rude to someone, it means the more you like them, you know? <laughs> That's the friendly thing to do to insult people yeah, where I come yeah, from. Exactly. Um, and I, yeah, I, I get that wrong occasionally, you may guess. Um, but there's a great song that I listen to a lot of the time by an artist called C.W. Stone King, who's a he's a contemporary Australian man who does kind of what sounds like authentic 1920s blues. He's yeah. really wonderful, and he's got this song called "The Rich Man's Blues," which is about leaving all your friends behind. And you know, um, I must go check that out. It's a gr- oh, it's a great song. It's a great album. He's great altogether. I love blues, and I'm normally ultra conscious of stuff that's reinvented. And it's like that's wrong. That's not authentic. But he's perfect. He gets it. He nails it. And yeah, I it was yeah it's still fearful and I still think I'm working through those fears a bit now actually I don't still? think yeah I you know I think processes are okay and and I I'm conscious that I still have these reactions that go oh I'm not one of you you know but that's not necessarily bad either so your husband so where does he sit in this two, in, in these two categories because I don't I don't know how to ask the question no no I think we're both we're both from the same background definitely okay. and I think what's interesting about if you looked at us from the outside most of our friends are, are very similar to us and they're both they're all from working class backgrounds but they've maybe all moved on pushed on a bit further too a bit like us um, and there's a commonality about that that I don't think everyone would understand necessarily and, uh, and actually you know a lot of our culture is dominated by very different discussions about the world by very middle class discussions about the world you know when we talk about fashion it seems to be fashionable now to talk about you know how stylish your mother was and how she handed down her Dior scarves and it's like dude you know my mum couldn't afford to do that you know she did the best that she could but she wasn't handing me down any Dior scarves let's just put it that way yeah. <laughs> Interesting. It's, it's funny isn't it because I think our media is dominated by a certain load of voices and there's a whole lot of people out there who've just got a very very different experience of the world and who are constantly seeing a, a world that they don't really recognise reflected in their culture yeah um, and I don't think that's happening any less either. I think that's happening more, more and more. more, more yeah. Particularly when you when you start thinking about the massive sort of ethnic and cultural mix in this country as well. And we're still getting these very white middle class voices leading our culture. And I don't think I'm alone in being a bit baffled by a lot of it, really. Oh, no, you're not alone. No, no <laughs> absolutely, you're not alone. But I'm thinking about the book, mm. 52 Seductions. How did, how did you get a book deal or how did, how did you get to publish it? I was so lucky because, you know, in my career before, I'd done loads of pitching to agents and I'd had no luck. And It's fierce out there. It's, it's absolutely fierce. Um, and, in fact, being turned down by an agent means nothing about the quality of your work. It's just whether you've hit a market at the time. And I'd had some and really... And they like you. Sometimes and they like you. That, that is true. And, you know, huge lesson in life, be nice to everyone <laughs> because that is valued in this industry more than people expect. Yeah. 
But I'd had some great feedback from agents saying, like your writing, but this isn't quite right. So I, I was encouraged, and the, published, uh, the publishers that I had worked with I'd approached directly. But very, very early on in the process of writing the blog of 52 Seductions, I mean, literally two months in, um, it attracted the attention of some national journalists who tweeted about it. Really? Um, and then very soon after that, I was uh, approached by a screenwriter who said, I'd like to option the book. Can you put me in touch with your agent? And I went, nah! <laughs> if you can... I'll get back to you, just fall down and then... I, I, no, I literally went, I haven't got an agent! <laughs> and, she, and she said, uh, this is all over DM on Twitter, she said, OK, I'll talk to my agent and I'll find you an agent first of all. Lovely woman. Really? Um, and I came off you the internet. There's, some, good in there's some great people in this world, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we should never forget that. Yeah. I think when we talk about Twitter, we talk about trolling and bullying and horrible things. That is so low down in the mix, it's yeah. not even there, yeah. actually. There are awesome people out there who, you know, are so generous, and, and this woman was one of them. But even so, I, turned, I closed my laptop and said to her, but... Yeah. <laughs> but she came good and a few days later I got a call from a major London agent. I mean this you know this was this is the biggest agency in the country and uh, saying would you like to come and have a chat about representing you? And I was kind of I still didn't believe it but you know went to the offices realized it really was the offices of Curtis Brown it wasn't just some weird internet fraud and yeah she signed me. So um that is a beguilingly simple tale that covers up years and years of, of hard graft beforehand. I just finally hit the book that looked right for the market. I've, I've interviewed publicist, mm -hmm. I think. Is she a publicist or is she... Yeah, I think she's a publicist. So she helps. She, she's a, she's a writing consultant. I, I okay. think that she used to work for Harper's and Queen. Right. So, so uh, right. Harper Collins, sorry. Uh, so that's that's what she okay. used to do. And she said that it, it takes one person to realize mm -hmm. that okay, you've written some other books which yeah. didn't do well, no. but there there will be a book that would strike. Yes. That somebody would just say. Yeah. Your voice has developed now, even though you were not writing in the same category as the other books. Absolutely. But your book, your 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 language, your tone, yeah. you have evolved as a writer. I'd found my voice exactly. And in fact, I realised as soon as as soon as that interest started, I was like, "Oh, that's funny," because this is the voice that sounds most like my own voice that I've ever written in. Yeah. Oh, you know, big light bulbs going yeah. off, really. And I could have signed with any of six agents. I, I started getting contacted by a lot and a lot of screenwriters trying to option as well. So I, I'd, I'd found the right voice. And, and I think, interestingly, I'm struggling with that a little bit now. Since the book, I've had a baby and I'm writing another book. And I'm being told off a lot by my agent for trying to talk out of my own voice again. So it's, it's in, that's obviously a battle for me. Um, so is it because success has come that you feel you're writing to specification now rather than yeah, writing from Yeah, I, I think there's experience. a lot of... Yeah, I think there's a lot of that. And I think also, because I, I had a... Ba uh, having my baby in between, I had a very difficult pregnancy and my confidence dropped a lot. 
and I, I was just, I, I found it really hard. I'm, I'm back on track a bit now, but it was interesting that when I came back to the table after, after little Bert started going to nursery, um, that that it was that voice again that, that had lost. And and maybe that's about what we've talked about. That I, you know, that my voice is is unusual in that it's it's an intelligent working class voice. I think that's what I think of, of the way that I talk, and that that's you know, there's there's a few of us out there, but there aren't many, and. Yeah, that's a that's a fascinating thing. So anyway, so because I love telling this story. So by the time I signed my agent, I still only had like 150 Twitter followers. I mean, it, they really had picked me up very early. Very sharp people, obviously. Um, and so then I just had to keep building the blog for a few months because you know publishers need this big platform thing i've always had loads more hits on my blog than than my twitter feed because um i get passed around friendship groups that's what i can see in the back end of my of my uh, wordpress account is that is people forwarding it to mates over hotmail or that that's the patterns that i could start seeing so they're not necessarily coming to me through twitter so um kept on writing that was really scary for me because I knew it had to build now if I was going to make this hammer home and we it we finally went to auction the so I started writing it uh, in early November 2010 and it finally went to auction September to October 2011 so it's you know it was building it took a long time and I had six publishers interested so and there was some competition over it so that was lovely that was really lovely yeah so I was very 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 lucky I noticed that it's been published in nine languages. How did that happen? How, how, how does that process happen? <laughs> I'd love to say I knew. Um, <laughs> actually, I got picked up very early in the process by a foreign rights scout who's become a great friend of mine. And she just loved the book. And uh, what scouts do, which I had no idea about the time. You never do it until you need these people, do you? Not a clue. I didn't. When First of all, they, uh, my agent forwarded the email from the, the foreign rights scout. And I had to read my book going, sorry, is this a good thing or a bad thing? You know, I, I just had no idea. But what she does is she has a relationship with a load of publishers across the world who trust her to recommend books to them. And she recommended it left, right and centre. And so the vast majority of my foreign rights were sold by her and her sheer enthusiasm. And she's still my biggest cheerleader. And I and I am so grateful to her because she's just wonderful. Um, I'd to give her a shout-out. You should talk to her as well. What's you should interview her. Um, she's Lucy Abraham. She's wonderful. She's incredibly dynamic and awesome. And I think you'd Is love she in her. London? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I need to. You should her. definitely talk. I'll introduce yeah. you. You should. Um, but also, it was my agency sold the others. So the, the foreign rights process is really odd. And if anyone wants to see this, I made a little video about it on my blog recently where I show you all my different editions because I've got um, traditional Chinese, which just looks so funky. It's unbelievable. Uh, Hebrew, all these... Languages that you can't even begin to read, it's brilliant. The experience as an author of having your foreign rights sold is literally that you know nothing about it until you get a contract (laughs) and a cheque. I mean, it really is like that. So it's quite weird. And it really surprised me that um, the publishers don't really even get in touch with you at all. I mean, some of them have to say hello, but that's been it. Um, And the translator doesn't get in touch with you. Um, It just all happens. (laughs) It's just totally outsourced. So, yeah, when people ask me about those languages, it's, to me, it's quite a disembodied thing. It's quite an odd thing to happen to your book. I know it's, on one hand, I know it's wonderful, but it's also, um, it's quite a weird feeling to know that your words have been changed into another language that you don't understand at all. (laughs) 
and it's just happened. It must um, be exciting. Though. Oh, massively. I mean, I couldn't believe it when they started selling. I just couldn't, I, you know, I was just a bit beside myself. I had no expectation of that. It's lovely. Nice. Have you thought about uh, having an audiobook for it? I would love to have an audiobook. The problem for me is that the book now doesn't have an editor because the editor that took the book on at headline has left. Um, and so the person that would normally be driving that forward just isn't there. I'd love to read the audiobook myself because I love reading. It's one of the things that I love doing is performing. You have to go have coaching lessons, you know, voice coach lessons. Yes, like probably, yeah. Because yeah. the thing is, they're, they're experts mm, who do audiobooks. Mm. And I would agree that you should do it. Mm, with I, a smoother voice. With, <laughs> not necessarily, but it has to be your voice because people yeah. would actually identify a lot more with that. Yeah. I remember a lady told me about an author I went and I bought his book because I can't I can't listen to a book being oh, really? read. I can't, I can't I don't know how to do that. I just I, I I believe in in either listen to people talk, yeah, which is a conversation, Mm-mm. or reading a book. Okay. I, I don't know how to do the in between where sure. one person is just talking. I, I fall asleep <laughs> almost immediately, so I'll never get to the it's end of that. Very book. soothing for you. It's very very soothing. So that's always my challenge. So this lady told me about this book and said it was a great book. I went and bought it. I didn't realize she 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 was talking about the audiobook because she's a, she right. listens to books on audio. Mm-hmm. And I got to meet the author. Okay. And he sounds exactly as he talks in his seminars or whatever he does. Wow. It, it was amazing. I was reading his book and I met yeah. him, so I was beside myself. Lovely. So I went and I told her, I saw her a couple of months later, I was like, you're not going to believe this book you told me about. <laughs> I met the author. She said, oh, you have to do something. You have to tell him that. His audiobook is not good. I was like, oh, really? So somebody else is reading it and it's not good. He changed his voice. For it me. wasn't him. Oh, it wasn't him. Oh, sorry. Somebody else read it. Okay. And yeah. she said, it's... There's something about the way this person reads it. I don't think it's him. I, I mean, I, I listen to quite a lot of audiobooks, mm. and I, I love hearing authors read their own books. But some of them are awful at it. Yeah. I think I'd be okay because well, I really you, like reading. No, I think you'd be okay because your voice. But also, is... I, I've, I've read a lot over the course of my career, and I love doing it. And actually, it's my, it's one of my favourite parts of being an author is that you can read and have a conversation with the audience almost at the same yeah. time which of course you can't do on an audio book yeah. so, um. but you see the difference between yours and, and other people's books is this is a personal life experience yes. so you'd be able to accentuate where you know and emphasize things yeah. this is what happened here yeah. you know you, you can actually add a bit more drama yeah. to it and I know about the the comic timing of the original sentences as well. Um, It's funny, actually, that puts in mind something slightly different but similar, um, is that on a few occasions now, when journalists have covered the book, unbeknownst to me, they've written the article as if I'm saying it, so they've interviewed me and then tried to write it as if I'm writing. And that's just a weirdly queasy experience someone pastiching your writing style it's like please please don't do it just stop it you know I can understand why you do that to a non-writer because they haven't got a kind of established voice but it's just weird and last week somebody asked to do a a guest post for my blog which sounded great and I said yes please and they came back and they'd written it as if they were pretending to be me well why do you think they do that is it because they're trying to impress you God, it had the opposite effect. No, I, I mean, it might. Yeah, I guess so. I flattery, think, kind of. Yeah, and it's a really weird form of flattery because it's basically saying, "Oh, anyone can do what you do." You know, um, 
I don't know. I think I think maybe there's just a misapprehension of what the form is, and I think also the journalistic thing is that so much is written in the first person. But I don't like that at all. And and so you know how what does it, it sound? What, what what does it read like? I tell you how it reads. It reads how Dick Van Dyke doing an English accent sounds <laughs> in Mary Poppins. That's how it I feels that's reading it. <laughs> It's like, oh, that's almost my voice, but it actually makes me sound like a bit of an idiot too. Thanks, you know. It's just, mm, yeah, it's horrible. It's horrible being pastiched. Um, I, just, I, I had a journalist contact me recently asking to do that, and I was like, no, no, no. And she thought I was really rude. She got back to me and said, oh, I've never had this response. I thought you'd be great for the, for the publicity. It's like, I'm so sorry. I'm so through with people writing things as if they're me. Because actually, that book is my voice, and if someone does a ham-fisted job of it, it doesn't do me any good at all, because people just read it and think, oh, that's not great, is it? The title, 52 Seductions, um, you know with Fifty Shades of Grey and, and all that's going on, that people, the that genre mm. seems to be, you know, have set the world alight is the only way <laughs> yes, yes. I can put it. Do you think there's, there's a chance that your book, do you think your book could go down that line? I think probably the time's passed for that. I mean, the Fifty Two Seductions came out about six months before Fifty Shades of Grey. Why do you think you're, you're, you're so fast? I, th- I think we... Well, I th- the, the problem with books is that publishers only really promote them for the first few months that they're out. Um, and so any effort that goes into it now is mine and my scope's, you know, limited to, to what I can manage. I think the difference between mine and the Fifty Shades is that... Fifty Shades is a is just uncomplicated pleasure, um, and mine is maybe less uncomplicated to use a double. No, but you see, I think you do yourself a disservice, actually. No, I, I seriously <laughs> do think you do yourself a disservice because yours is about real life, and while there's so much about fantasy and living in that fantasy world, people would like to bring something back home to them. What actually really happens, and see a portrayal of what genuinely happens in a relationship which if you think about lots of married couples and people who've been married for a long time who are struggling like you guys were you would get a higher percentage in your group than the people who are fantasizing about yeah and and that's the feedback i get definitely and the other point is that people are reading 50 shades to get over the problem that you mm. you had, mm. just that they don't have the man on board, or probably don't have the man on board. I bet they just he would do. be on board if only they ask him. No. <laughs> but you get my point. I do. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, I, I'd I'd uh, I'd love it if it went totally viral. It no, hasn't. Is the truth. You know, you but... should work on that. There's a lady I interviewed. I, I know I'm pushing you, but I, no, because okay. because I genuinely think that you have story that people need to see or hear. That's that's how I how I genuinely feel. And a lady I interviewed over the summer called Joanna Penn. Mm-hmm. And you can listen to that interview yeah. on Dream Corner. She talks about she's a writer. Um, but she she taught herself to write and she's mm-hmm. written a couple of thrillers now. She so she writes in that um down brown esque Okay. She writes yeah, about kind theology. Of yeah, the, this this is the kind of book she she writes. Mm-hmm. But she's also you know, developed herself as a an entrepreneur mm. as well, mm. you know, writing to as a living. Yeah. And one of the things she she's she's, she's so she's self published and she's now looking to be a hybrid. And I don't know if you know what a hybrid is. Yeah. So someone who wants to to have a publishing deal but also be self published yeah. as well. She also wants her books to to be a script to mm. to be turned into mm. like a, a broad mm. church 
type. I see. Um, and is she going to write that herself? No, but out of her, she, she doesn't know. But she's she's mm. trying to see mm. if That's she can end. get um, get her book into that yeah. sort of um, uh, area. And I think it's something you can start looking at. So if you listen to that interview, maybe go on her website. You you may get get some ideas and maybe get the confidence to yeah to start well, looking at it in that way. I'll tell you a few things off record later. About okay. But you see, you see what I mean, you know, oh no, I totally get that. And I think, um, you know, obviously I do do an awful lot of work to promote the book, but you know, I think it's, it's just interesting, isn't it? What catches on and what doesn't. And I think 50 shades was the book for the moment because, uh, you know, it's no, no coincidence that happened at the height of a recession as well. Because it's about escapism and it's about yeah. people escaping into this wonderful fantasy world. And the last time that happened was with Dan Brown, actually, mm. and maybe Harry Potter. Mm. Those books are about about leaving this planet for a while and existing in a realm. And, and you know, the realm of Fifty Shades is, is huge wealth, isn't it? It's, it's about kind of impossibly big wealth and power and the attractiveness of that. And, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I know it's very conventional to... to you know, run it down, but I think it, it's given a lot of women a lot, an awful lot. Yeah, it has, it has. And you said you were writing a second book. Yes. And is can you give us some idea of what what it's like? Yeah, I'm I'm writing a new book called Discernment at the moment, which is about my mission to live the good life uh, on a budget, really. Uh, so the best possible life, and how to judge and how to be discerning about about the good things, and basically what's worth it and what isn't. Um, so it's it's kind of like a, a gourmet guide for the post-recessionary age, I suppose. My um, friend got the recession is getting to you. Yeah, it seems to be getting over, and I think. We're all looking for luxuries. We're all seeking luxury at the moment because we've all had a hard time. We've all cut right back. We've all worried about money for ages. And I think we're, we, want, we want that to seep back into our lives. We can't afford the credit that we used to have. We can't afford the big luxuries. So it becomes the challenge becomes about how to judge what things are actually worth it. What are the, what are the things that are actually wonderful? And where has the emperor got no clothes on? And I'm really interested in that at the moment. I'm having loads of fun with that. Because obviously it's me, so it's still really humorous, it's still really quirky and questioning. I got to drive a Mercedes around the other week and just didn't get it at all. It made no sense to me. It just had loads of buttons. What's the difference? It's a car. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like somebody saying, I bought my, my watch from Walmart. What's the point in having a Rolex kind of thing? Well, yeah, because it still tells the time, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> on the other hand you try separating me from my iphone and I'll, you know the Stop claws will come out yeah yeah totally and i but i think that's what's really interesting is that we're moving forward as a society we're, we're not valuing those external symbols of wealth in the way that we used to because they mean so little i suppose partly because knockoffs have got so good i mean i'm from chatham and believe me burberry does not feel posh to me anymore you know? <laughs> Ditto Louis Vuitton. Um, and, but also that I think from, for me, I have no understanding of how uh, a Louis Vuitton case will be better than my case that I bought from Matala. <laughs> that wheels along very I'm nicely. Sure some people would like to educate you on that, but I, I would. I would love to know, and genuinely, <laughs> I'd like to know. And some things I'm very conver- converted on. Actually, I totally get posh gin, for example, but maybe that's it's got alcohol in it. Um, <laughs> some things, some things, com- I'm converted to. For example, I do. Th- I do 
genuinely or I'm beginning to understand how well-made clothes are better. Um, I have to break my Matalan fixation. I really do. I, me and Matalan might be over. Probably not. <laughs> You're so funny. <laughs> anyway, you're moving on this journey. You've done this writing course. And where do you think that's going to take you then? <sighs> I don't know. And I, do you know where I want to be is doing lots of different things. I've never had one goal and I don't like having one thing to do. I want to have a life that has balance, that, that lets me achieve loads of different things um, and lets me change. That, that change is important to me. I would like to move towards a life where I don't have financial concerns, but that doesn't mean to say I crave Rolexes. They're two different things. Um, and I think... It's another big change in our society that we're all beginning to learn to talk about money in a very different way to the way we've talked about it before. It's not just necessity or luxury, it's lifestyle. And I'm a great reader of those people like Tim Ferriss, you know, who promise you you can work for four hours yeah, a week. And absolutely. I don't know if that's actually going to ever happen for me. But, yeah, so, that, you know, they're, they're my well, aims. If you, get your, if you get 52 seductions, um, you know, to get the screen rights sold, so mm -hmm. yes, that yeah. could be it. You actually, never know. three days. But, but there's something as well for me that I don't, and maybe this is wrong of me, but I don't crave the things that are out of my control. So I'd love The no, Fifth Two Seductions to be a, a film, but that would never be something that I'd make happen. So I don't really care about it. I care about the, the, the stuff that I put the work into. I, and for me, it's I'm really process-led. But you see, the back end of that is the work you put into it is what would lead to that. Oh, true. But but that work's already happened, and I'm really proud of the book. And that's the bit that I just step step out of and think, well, if anything else happens with it, then awesome. But I'm moving on to the next thing that I've got control over and that I've got power over, and they're the bits that I'm interested in, because there's no amount of money that I'd make that would ever stop me from writing, no, or absolutely. teaching, or you know, working on on a whole range of projects and. That's but where that, my interest always lies. Yeah, and that's central to your values, actually. Totally. So that's totally. where you'd always be. And what inspires me and what makes me feel creative, I mean, the, the biggest loss for me would be creativity. That's the thing that gets me up in the morning. I love plotting obscure things to do. And I love, I love communicating with other people. And, and it's those things that, that really keep me going. That's what's really important to me. So what advice would you give anyone who's thinking of writing or who's written and thinking of how am I going to get this book somewhere? I think you have to get out there as a writer, but you have to be smart about how you get your writing out there. I'm seeing a lot of writers, I teach on an MA creative writing course at the moment, and I'm seeing a lot of writers who are great, competent writers, they've got really interesting ideas, and what they're doing is sitting back and waiting for people to find them. And I would include in that the category of writers who are starting a blog and writing absolute nonsense on there that doesn't reflect their skills and talents. If you're going to start a blog, that is your shop front. And you've got to dress it and you've got to make that full of the most interesting content you can generate. And for God's sake, if you're an amateur writer, don't start a blog about writing because agents and publishers don't care about that. They, they're not seeing what you can do. 
So you need to go out and show people exactly what you can do and be your best salesman and put the best version of yourself out there. Yeah, and find your voice. Find your voice. And I think, um, I mean, you know, I've just mentioned that I teach Creative Writing MA. I think the great flaw in the rise of the Creative Writing MA is that we're teaching students to wear a literary voice that isn't necessarily theirs. And we're teaching them that one type of writing's good and all the rest doesn't count. And you know what? It's all the rest that make people money and build people careers. And I think we need to start learning to see the beauty in hearing people's real voices and the real stories that people want to tell and want to hear. And you've just got to go out and be authentic and tell those and That's stop trying to be... Use. Yeah. Authenticity is everything. And the web is a great litmus test for authenticity. You can sniff out inauthentic people a mile off online. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's just vital. So go out there, write the story that you want to write, write it in your voice, and keep reminding yourself that you are not doing this in private. You are doing this in an open forum, and you owe it to yourself to be amazing every time you do it well i've loved this interview yes i'm sure you can tell i've been looking forward to this yeah. it's been so much fun yeah. if you've kept us company on dream corner thank you very much betty herbert thank you thank um, you wishing you all the luck and success with continued success with 52 seductions and of course your new book so when it's written published and everything come back and talk to us I'm beating a path to your door don't worry <laughs> <laughs> more interviews on dream corner later take care then bye-bye